You're listening to the Trust Issues Podcast. I'm David Puner, a Senior Editorial Manager at CyberArk, the global leader in identity security. Your organization isn't the only one innovating. Threat actors have a new arsenal of tactics and tools to breach organizations and launch attacks, including methods fueled by generative AI, which we've discussed on previous Trust Issues episodes. They know that every identity at any access point is a gateway to an organization's most valuable resources. And you know it too. Nine in 10 IT security decision makers expect AI to drive negative cybersecurity impact. Today's attackers employ a business innovation mindset and are constantly upping their game. Just look at the marketplace for ransomware. Strains are made, bought and sold, e-commerce style. Software supply chain attacks also continue to be a hot topic, cascading software supply chain attacks to be more specific. And then there's cookie or session hijacking where attackers gain control of a user's session and steal their cookies which can then be used to further penetrate networks by way of what's essentially assumed identity. That's a subject we've previously covered with today's guest, Shai Nahari, who's the leader of CyberArk's Red Team. Today, Shai talks with me about attacker innovation and how he and his team, as offensive defenders, stay on the cutting edge. And then we'll take a trip back to 2016 and the Bangladesh bank heist and a cutting-edge engagement Shai and his team participated in in the wake of the heist. Here's my conversation with Shai Nahari. Shai Nahari, VP of CyberArk Red Team Services, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, David. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you? Not too bad. Good to see you. You've been on the podcast a couple times. We haven't seen you since last December. And, and then for a while, I was bumping to you in the uh, Newton office bumping into you, that is, in the Newton office, and then not so much. You've had a pretty busy summer. Where have you been, and and have you gotten over the jet lag yet? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's been a, a busy summer. That's one way of, uh, of saying that. Um, I traveled a lot. I spent a, a week in Israel, a uh, mixture of business and, and vacation. From there, I went to Singapore for our uh, Singapore Impact, uh, customer event, met with the customers, um, had some media interviews. And from there, I went to Australia, to Melbourne, for again, to Impact World Tours. Great event. And just recently came back. Great. Well, good to see you. And I, I hope to see you in the office one of these days. So most recently, you were on the podcast last December with Andy Thompson, and you came on to talk about cookie hijacking or stolen cookies. And then back in June of 2022, we talked about generally kind of what you and the CyberArk Red Team do. Um, and I think maybe a good place to start is sort of as a quick refresher to our audience, what does the, the Red Team do? We mainly do adversary simulation. So our goal is to uh, provide organization a way to test themselves or measure themselves against attackers with certain set of capabilities. So the idea is to emulate full scope breach against an organization. And I think what really interesting about this is where um, a lot of organizations kind of have 
their plan versus reality is what happened when you evade their security tools with at least the first line of defense. What happened next? And what happened when you actually need to use that plan that you have, you know, block that account, reset passwords, do incident response. This is where things uh, become really interesting. And this is where things move from, I have a plan to, I don't know what I'm doing right now, right? Uh, type of scenarios. So this is really what we're trying to do. We're trying to allow you to test and measure all your plans, uh, incident response against an attack. And try to find gaps in your overall security posture. So needless to say, the red team probably for the most part doesn't really have an awful lot to do. Every once in a while you get called in, work hard for a couple of days and then kind of chill for the rest of the year, right? That's exactly what we do. No. <laughs> um, in reality, what happened is we spend a lot of our time uh, researching techniques and attacks because our idea is to allow organizations to test themselves again what is out there currently. So a lot of our um, time is spent on doing research, whether it's finding what actors are doing, threat actors are currently doing, or finding our own ways uh, to circumvent tools and create attacks, what we call TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures. So we do spend a lot of time researching those TTPs for the actual engagements that we have. Matt Cohen, CyberArk CEO, was on the podcast recently, and he talked about the three driving forces behind today's identity security landscape. And those are to paint in broad strokes, new identities, new environments, and attacker innovation. Probably none of these come as a surprise to you. As a defender, really as an offensive defender, you focus a great deal on attacker innovations, as you just mentioned, which is aka attack methods. What's gotten your attention these days on the attacker innovation front? Yeah, and I, by the way, I love the term offensive defender. Um, I don't think I've heard that before. I'm going to use it. I'm going to steal it. I'm going to use right. it. We'll get you a so. bumper sticker. That's probably a good one. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure my wife will like it, but yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, love, I love the term. So, so yeah, as, as Matt mentioned, you know, we've seen three different pillars in the attack landscape, right? The identity is the expansion of identities which I'm sure Matt talked about, the new environments that move into the cloud, the proliferation of cloud assets, and then the attacker innovation, what we're seeing as ways for actor groups, things that they do to circumvent some of the security controls. Um, if you kind of try to summarize the three main goals that we're seeing, the first one is we're seeing a huge increase in what we call cascading supply chain. Cascading supply chain. Cascading supply chain are themselves not new, right? We've seen supply chains attack happening for the last 20 years, right? But in the past, we've seen it usually reserved for military and defense organizations. We've seen some attacks against critical infrastructure happening from a supply chain. And we've seen this also leak into the more financially motivated groups, right? Some, some very famous ransomware started from a supply chain attack where the attacker compromised some vendors and from there moved to the consumer level, okay? Cascading supply chains take it really one step further. So instead of just compromising a single vendor, let's say a software vendor that allows you to move into other customers or other organizations, in a cascading supply chain, the actors compromise a vendor that provides software to another vendor that provides software to another vendor and so on. So it's kind of further down the chain 
And that achieves a couple of things. One, obviously wider spread, right? If you are earlier in the supply chain, you have the ability to affect more organizations or more targets. By the way, when I say organization, it could also be, we've seen cascading supply chain also affecting individual users. So it could be B2B or B2C type of attacks. It seems like this is something that's probably been in existence for a while, almost like a Russian doll's ripple effect of supply chain and a huge deal for almost any organization out there. Why is it something that we're seeing more now of? So again, supply chain gives you a lot of value as an attack. You can find the, probably the weakest link in the chain and go after that, right? So if you're targeting a certain organization, which is really mature, if you can compromise one of its vendors and allow you to infect the software of that, that your end target is using, you find yourself a way to get in without uh, kind of bypassing a lot of the security controls. So that's, again, not new. We've seen this happen in various targets and different verticals. What's new here is, again, moving away from that single source because we've seen organizations spend more time on vetting their vendors, whether it's checking the security and software of their vendor um, or even even integral flow within their own uh, CICD2 pipeline to see if there is any effect to the code. Once attacker moving away from that single vendor to the next uh, link down the chain, it makes it extremely harder for your organization to vet that, right? So now you not only need to vet all your vendors, but you need to vet all of their vendors and their vendors. So it, it makes it harder. It's obviously a little bit more uh, time consuming from an ROI from the attacker perspective, because it now needs to affect more target and understand, do some maybe more intelligence to understand what are the software that the target needs. Uh, but the return of investment is much larger. In regards to what organization can do, fundamentally, it's shifting the attention from maybe direct infection, what we used to see as phishing, to maybe supply chain attack. But the fundamental assumption of assume breach should stay in place, right? Organizations should assume attackers would find a way into their infrastructure, whether it's in traditional aspect of, you know, we'll fish one of your users or in the newer ways, right? We infected one of your vendors and we got the internal access to that. So organizations should make the assumption that attackers are already within their network and plan their entire security posture based on that. Start with that assumption and build upon that. And how does identity security figure into that? Right. So when we look at identity security, especially in recent years, we found that identity became sometimes the only perimeter, right? If you take away the firewalls and you make the assumptions that uh, attackers, they already have foothold within your network to a supply chain attack, then you understand that identities are really the first line of defense you have against compromise. If you can't necessarily control the location of your employees, whether it's work from home or a compromise to a supply chain, then you need to verify that the identities that are used within your infrastructures are monitored and audited and controlled by you. And that you have a good way to not only um, identify the usage of those identities, but also have the ability to react to an abuse of those. We've talked a lot about it here on the podcast, generative AI, including with your colleague, Levi Lazarevitz, uh, recently who heads up CyberArk Labs. And for good reason, organizations are worried about what kind of impact it's going to have or it's having right now. 
how does that figure into the supply chain attacks or is it just how does it figure into everything? How are you thinking about it? What are you seeing in the generative AI world other than um, playing the generative AI uh, drinking game in Australia? <laughs> yeah, so uh, <laughs> so I think you can't wake up in the morning without hearing generative AI, right? So, right. Um, and I know Lavi talked extensively about that. We know it's going to affect and going to change our life. I think none of us really know how much. There's obviously a lot of initiatives both on the defensive side and the offensive side, we've really started seeing that AI sticker being put on every defensive tool out there. I can tell you from an offensive perspective, there's a few things we're seeing. The first one is we've seen um, attackers obviously use it from code generation. I know Levi talked about it a little bit as well. So we make it much easier to write malware. The second thing we've, we've seen is we've seen usage of AI without the protection, the built-in protections that are out there. So if you, for example, you try to go to ChatGPT today and say, you know, build me a bomb, obviously it will say, well, I cannot do that. We've, we start seeing versions of that, of different AI modules being sold in the dark web without that protection. Are those protections easily removed? Well, if you control the, the module itself, yes, you can do whatever you want. Um, the, the more controls that you have right now is because the module still sits at certain companies and then they can enforce certain restrictions. Again, not to say those cannot be bypassed, even if they do exist, but if you control the, mod, the module itself, you can remove those artificial uh, limitations uh, completely. We've seen different modules getting sold in the dark web that claim to uh, have any limitation removed. Whether it's effective or not is to be determined, but we've seen actors selling those type of modules out there. So we've looked at AI for our own usage. It's a mixed result. Obviously, it can make life easier for us, but at the same time, I think it also takes away a lot of the edge that uh, you have as an attacker. I'll give you an example. We have an internal project to write an offensive command control server that, that we develop in-house. Uh, that has more than 300,000 lines of code as, as of right now. Um, and we're currently testing our, our code against different EDRs, different security controls to see what's getting detected and if we can bypass them from an attacker perspective. I can tell you we've done really, really well when we wrote our code to not get detected. One day, one of my guys come and say, you know what, um, Shai, we have a small module that we want to develop and it's a, it's a small one. In order to save time, we want to see if we can generate it with with the machine learning. I said, sure, let's let's try that. It's a really, really small module, less than 100 lines of code. And then funny enough, when we generated it, we generated it, integrated it, and then did our security testing against vendors, and we found out that we're getting detected. We found out that out of this huge project, the only thing that's getting detected is the small, less than 100 lines of code that was generated with AI. Hmm, okay. So we dug into that and we suspect that the reason why that gets detected is because the way the code is generated is very different than what human would write. So the defensive side, the defensive AI, basically said, well, that's abnormal and triggered on that. So there is pros and cons for this from, from an attacker perspective. What are the implications for attackers there? So I, I think just like defenders, um, AI is a, will be a great tool. But I think it, at this point in time, human intervention and human awareness are still mandatory part of the development lifecycle. And we have not seen a lot of success with blind generating code 
AI code without testing or without human interfering there. Um, so I think, again, it's no different than a regular developer that's writing software. Uh, it can be used. You just need to be understand what you're doing and it can shorten the time, but you need to know what you're doing and what are the implication of generating that code with AI. The next attacker innovation that I know you've been looking at quite a bit is session cookie hijacking. What's been going on in that world since we last spoke to you about it last December? And maybe we should start by just a quick reminder of what cookie hijacking is. In layman terms, cookies are a source of trust that is given to you or is set in your browser after you authenticate to a site. So imagine, again, you're going to authenticate into Google with your password and multi-factor authentication. Once the authentication part happens, your browser is given a cookie that has a certain duration. And if you visit any of the Google subdomains, as long as the cookie is valid, you're not required to authenticate again. Uh, that is fundamental part of the way HTTP and browsers work. Now, as, as you can notice, this happens post-authentication, which means from an attacker perspective that if we can steal that cookie, we can assume your identity for the duration of the session, which means we don't need to know your password. We don't need to, to have your multi-factor authentication. We can just continue the session where you stopped, right? Obviously, this is really, really big for attackers. We started seeing this use a couple of years ago. We've completely migrated to that. There are other advantages of, of stealing cookies from an attacker perspective. Um, without going too technical, the level of uh, privileges that you need to steal that is much lower than any other credentials in the browser or in the, in the machine. So imagine this, your browser is designed to run by low-level account, which means the cookies are not stored, don't require admin to be used um, by the browser. So as an attacker, we don't need to be admin to steal them. It's also very, really hard for uh, defensive mechanism like EDRs to detect. So we've seen a huge explosion of this uh, type of attack vector. Um, I think Microsoft themselves reported a 100% year-over-year increase in session hijacking that they've seen. That's really just a, a short description of session hijacking. Can you give some examples around how session hijacking takes place or, or maybe some engagements that you've been involved in lately? Yeah, so we've we've actually been using session hijacking uh, extensively um, in the last couple of years. Some examples to that is an attack we've done against a really, really large bank. Uh, the bank asked us to get access to their payment infrastructure, their SWIFT infrastructure, and that we've bypassed the security controls on that by stealing cookies that allows us to access the SWIFT terminal, perform uh, wire transfer, and then still someone else's cookie to approve the transfer and send it away. I like how you so nonchalantly said, yeah, we, you know, we did this engagement with some bank and, and, and you're speaking of something actually was a really big deal. And I heard you give a presentation on this back in the spring and I had no idea. It's around the uh, Bangladesh bank heist that happened in 2016 the cyber thieves stole $81 million. And I, I know that they were shooting higher at one point, but that's what they made off with. So so you're right, 2016, maybe one of the largest bank heists in recent history. Um, 
as you said, the attackers made a series of 35 different transactions, trying to steal almost $1 billion from the Federal Reserve in New York. Uh, the first five transactions succeeded. On the sixth one, the one of the banks that participated in the transfer noticed that the attacker misspelled the word foundation in the transfer. And they, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining someone thinking, well, you're trying to transfer $1 billion and you're, you can't spell the word foundation. And that kind of triggers some investigation. So that's really what triggered um, or stopped that specific attack. And that triggered a lot of insight into how payments are made in, in the banking uh, world. And the engagement I was just talking about was one of the results of that. A lot of banks are now looking into ways to see, can attacker actually transfer money outside of their accounts? So that engagement was exactly that, an adversary emulation aimed to test that. If attackers can transfer money, can they bypass all the security controls, and can the bank detect those types of uh, activities before transactions are made? And so with that one, did you actually transfer funds or was it just about getting in? Yeah, so, so this was really an interesting engagement. A lot of time, organization would define some critical infrastructure for us and say, once you get access to the control of the right privileges, stop. In this case, the bank wanted to see end-to-end transfer. So they actually gave us account numbers to use to steal the money uh, if we're successful. So we've actually made a transfer. They, they've imposed some limitations on the amount and where and what time of day, but that's about it. So and this is one of the cases where they actually wanted to see the money being transferred out of the account. Um, I think this was exciting. And and since that time, you've run similar engagements with quite a few banks, I would think. Yeah, we've done bank. Um, we've actually used session hijacking to other extent to other verticals as well. We've done critical infrastructure, water, energy. Um, we've done CCTVs. And again, if you think about it, everything today is running on browsers. So if you are able to steal those cookies, you have a free reign to everything that's running within a browser context. And that's apropos that you would mention that because we, of course, have something called a secure web browser. That's CyberArk has a secure web browser product that'll be coming out toward the end of the year. Have you been involved in that at all? And and I imagine, you know, with your uh, vast knowledge of uh, cookie hijacking, you've had some input. So we've been talking about cookies and session hijacking for a couple of years internally, even before we start talking externally. And we said, you know what, this is interesting because this you know, falls exactly into what we do, right? We are the identity security company. This is what we do. We protect identities. So we wanted to see if we can um, kind of extend the protection to a fundamental flaw in HTTP and see if we can solve that problem. And I think we provided that input internally. And yes, we were part of the very early on, the input and thinking group on how that cyber secure browser will play and take effect and, and protect those session cookies. We can look forward to the release of that toward the end of the year. It's going to look and feel like a regular Chromium-based browser, as I understand it. Yeah, exactly. It's built on, on Chromium. And because we're building the browser from the ground up, we have an ability to do things that are not normally uh, possible in regular browsers. And that also includes our cookies and sessions are handled. Uh, in addition to other operational aspect, we have the ability to control it at a very low level. So yes, you know, suffice to say, we're solving that cookie problem with the CyberExecute browser by eliminating those cookies from the endpoint completely. 
So does that mean that once that's out, we're not going to be able to have you back on to talk about cookies again? We're going to have to find something else to <laughs> well, talk to you about? Well, well, we'll have to find different things to talk about. Yes. All right. Okay. Well, uh, it probably won't be that hard. So, Shai, where are we going next around the world? And can I come along? And uh, what do you have coming up this fall? I'm uh, hopefully not traveling too much. Uh, there's a Canada impact that I'm going to do in Toronto. Um, but that's that's it. That's my plans right now. I need a break. Yeah, that's a that's a much better flight than Sydney or Australia to to Boston. Yes, much much better uh, much better commute. Yes. Shine Nahari, thanks so much for coming back onto the podcast. Look forward to seeing you in person sometime real soon, and uh, we'll have you back on the podcast in the near future. I hope it's been a pleasure. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Trust Issues. If you like this episode, please check out our back catalog for more conversations with cyber defenders and protectors. And don't miss new episodes. Make sure you're following us wherever you get your podcasts. And let's see. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, drop us a line if you feel so inclined. Questions, comments, suggestions, which come to think of it are kind of like comments. Our email address is trustissues, all one word, at cyberarc.com. See you next time.